I want to welcome Michiko and Leah to our conversation. They wrote a wonderful article for Kappen Magazine, uh, Phi Delta Kappen, titled Making Sense of Readings Forever Wars. And on this subtitle is Adopting a New Science-Based Methodology is Not Enough to Address Students' Difficulties with Reading. And we were chatting prior just how much we appreciate how well you were succinct in your um, uh, article, but yet covered so much ground. I'm going to share my screen here so we can all see it. And yeah, um, and I'm just going to scroll down here to your bylines. And your well-sourced cited article. So Leah is an associate professor in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Sociocultural Studies at the University of Arizona, Tucson. And Michiko is an associate professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. So welcome again. And um, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll start with the first question here. And it's the question actually is your question um, is, have we learned anything from our past debates or are you just going in circles? <laughs> and I'll open it up to Leah or Michiko first, but uh, people feel free to, uh, everyone else here, feel free to chime in and offer your thoughts. Mm. And when you do, if you can introduce yourself too, um, when you speak, um, Michiko and Leah, we've already introduced you. For, for other guests here, uh, just make, make sure you state your name. Do you want to do you want to take this or do you want me to give it a shot? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we have not learned as much as we should have from past debates. Um, and I think that was part of the reason why Michiko and I really wanted to write this is that it seemed like, you know, No Child Left Behind is very recent history. And um, and at least the way that people are legislating science of reading, it is pretty much identical to uh, scientifically based reading research, you know, the term from the Bush era, it's still like the big five from the report of the national reading panel. Um, so in some ways it seems like, you know, there's this real energy to do exactly what has already been done without really grappling with why that didn't lead to the, you know, the sort of transformative changes that people hoped it would. And I think it's really, I think it's very important that we do that, you know, like if we don't, um, sort of acknowledge the way that No Child Left Behind and Reading First really fell short of, I think, the big dreams that people had for it um, and think about why, um, then there's no chance of not doing that again. Mm -hmm. So I think I really hope that, um, you know, that this, that the article gives people a chance to think about um, what we've already tried and what that means about what we haven't tried and should try and do differently. Um, in order to not just sort of like do this the same old thing over and over again every 10 to 15 years. I, I do want to add to that a little bit and say that from a research perspective, um, I do think that that there has been some consensus. Um, and, and that consensus is that um, phonics instruction is, is helpful uh, as a part of a, a more robust uh, literacy curriculum. Um, I think you, you 
a person would be hard pressed to find a researcher that is anti phonics. Um, I think, uh, but I but I I reiterate what what Leah's saying that at a policy level, that doesn't feel like how it's being taken up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you see, I think with the um, I won't put it, put anyone on the spot here, but I I think the uh, B reading by third grade retention policies might be one where we're not really learning from cast and repeating some mistakes and um yeah i but yeah if you're to me it sounds like you're this article's intent was just to create a pause for us and just to take stock of where we've come from where we're at and how might we proceed forward so um yeah that's how i read it too uh and i just open it up to our guests here we have deborah uh mary and sonia so um, any thoughts on this too? What have you learned, if anything, from past debates? Well, one of the things that I'm, and I'm Mary, I'm um, been an educator 51 years and now living in Honolulu. And um, I'm connecting back to something that you said in your piece that that I, keeps capturing my attention. Some have argued that a permanent sense of crisis in K-12 education has been manufactured by those who aim to undermine the institution of public uh, schools and scapegoat educators as a way of diverting attention from America's deepening social problems. And I think um, <laughs> for me, a lot of that is wanting a thing and that's always been, you know, what I've seen in all of these years in education, but never so much as now when social media makes it so easy, but wanting to blame all of these, uh, we don't have enough programs, we don't have enough, you know, phonics, we don't have enough this, we don't have enough this, and this is the way to fix it. And for anyone who's been in education longer than a day, the one thing that we know is that nothing is going to work all the time for every child, and it's certainly not going to work when we're fixated on that. So that, that quote, I just always keep coming back to that quote, because the one thing we don't want to talk about is um, those deepening social problems. And so the article really meant a lot to me, because you did that so beautifully. And Mary, if I can just then transition what you just said to maybe uh, a question to, to Michiko and Leah is, you mentioned um, that not one thing's going to work for everyone. And um, and I appreciate you surfacing that because in, in the article too, uh, you mentioned that uh, students don't need just, they don't need individual instructional change. They need institutional change. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that's what Mary's pointing to here too, is, you know, that's a big, big thing to take on. You know, as practitioners, you know what. What are some ideas you might have for us to uh, move on? You know, like a next step that would mean probably might be helpful. Hmm. I have a, a couple of of thoughts, um, and they are are maybe outside of the classroom more than inside of the classroom because we are talking about institutional change. Uh, so I think a lot about teachers as public intellectuals. Um, so when when you've been teaching for 51 years, uh, like Mary has, you have a lot of uh, 
a wealth of knowledge that you can stand on um, in, a, in a public context. Um, so I think speaking publicly, posting on social media, having podcasts, those kinds of things, um, as well as uh, like organizing and, and doing things like voting. Mm. Yeah, and I, I would say my answer is pretty similar um, in that I think you know, maybe part of what we can do is redefine what counts as reading policy. You know, things that are about housing are also reading policy, like things that are about poverty are also reading policy. Um, and, you know, I think that we sometimes compartmentalize them and think that those belong in a different um, sort of arena or somebody else's expertise. Um, but I think that they should be part of the conversation and part of like our efforts around improving reading have to do with like improving everything, even though that's a lot and hard to do. Um, but, but it definitely won't happen if we don't try, you know, as part of it. Um, and, you know, and the other piece that related to that, I think is that one thing that has been hard for me about watching this current round of the reading wars is that, um, there really is a tremendous amount of money being spent. Mm. Um, but it tends to be, but to my eyes, it's being spent on things that we don't, that I wouldn't reasonably expect to cause um, huge changes based on the research. But there are other things that might, that we're not spending money on because I think we don't categorize them as being about reading. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's that's part of it too, like to make um, people are willing to spend money, like millions of dollars of money. Um, but maybe I think they like legislators need some push around what counts as doing something about reading. Mm -hmm. I would say that that comes back to this question of what have we learned? And, and I think there is some consensus in the field about um, the impact of poverty and trauma and, um, and housing insecurity uh, on, on reading scores. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the few correlations I've seen is you know, poverty and, and trauma and, and some of these challenges um, as a principal and as a former teacher and that correlation with reading achievements. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, we mentioned this latest round of the reading wars. Um, <clears throat> we use these metaphors and to try to describe it, but um, I, I also noted in there too, um, instead of like these, um, the pendulum swinging, you talk about incremental progress as a better way to gauge growth as a profession with reading instruction and um, what things have you seen you know you know have you, now that you've studied this in terms of specifically around reading instruction you mentioned that we know phonics does work um, as a instructional strategy and other uh, resources or practices that are promising and that you'd like to see you know you mentioned we have all this money where would you want to what buckets would you want to put the money in? Um, certainly outside of education, poverty and and those issues are super important. Within the school, where would you want to put some of those resources? Well, one of the things um, that I think about in terms of you know what all schools need to do a good job um, is some some based on an experience I had when we were um, both doctoral students at UT Austin, one of the 
pieces of our training there was to supervise student teachers. And so we did that in schools all across the Austin area. So um, in the you know urban core and the suburbs. And one of the things that has really stayed with me was how different, even within the same district, um, classrooms were and schools were in terms of resources, um, depending who was enrolled there. And so I think about, um, you know, one particular school where I sometimes supervise student teachers that was just like really lovely. And I would want everyone to have that experience. Um, you know, the teachers there were terrific, really talented teachers. They had huge classroom libraries. Um, and just a lot of care and expertise went into sort of mediating kids' access to books, kids' instruction, um, and were very inclusive. Like I remember seeing, um, you know, the whole classroom labeled in Braille, you know, when there was a child who would benefit from them. So there's all these things that I think if you look at some of these schools that are already serving more affluent communities, um, I think it's I feel like everyone deserves that, you know, like, and part of that is making it a, an attractive working condition. So the one I'm thinking of, um, you know, teachers, one of the reasons I think that teachers like to work there and experienced teachers like gravitated towards it was that they had money to pay for extra specials teachers so that they got more planning periods. And I think that was part of what into what went into like really thoughtful lessons. Um, and they had tons and tons and tons of children's books. And, you know, I think that's an important piece that we should also take from the sort of whole language side or the meaning focused side of, you know, these different pendulum swings is that, um, you know, that there's value in thinking about meaning, there's value in children's literature as a resource. Um, and that doesn't have to be opposed to teaching about phonics, teaching about the code. Um, so I guess that's, my answer is, I think if you look at, um, you know, like a really wonderful school in an affluent neighborhood and think about what are all the resources that they have right there, even just in the school, right? That's even leaving outside like all the sort of different things that kids have access to. Um, but I would want like all children to get to go to a school that looks and feels like that one in terms of like a good place to learn, a good place to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any thoughts from the, the rest of the group on what was shared there? So, hi, I'm Deborah Crouch. I'm a literacy consultant, so I go in and support schools. Um, I live in San Diego, and uh, um, and and you're you're echoing a conversation I had with the principal this morning as we walked around and we were looking at classroom libraries specifically, and just kind of thinking about what. It looks like, and at one point I asked him, I said, so I said, it's that getting that picture, it's like, what would an affluent school look like? Why can't we create spaces that feel like that? Because one of the things that we were noticing were like some of the jumbles in classrooms, like storage, like it's sort of like the, the classroom's got the classroom, but then it's also got storage stuff all over. And we were starting to brainstorm ways that we could even take some of that out. And, you know, is there a space in the building that we could use as a, a storage because a, another principal had shared that idea. And I think it's that, that envisioning, like what are some of the possibilities that we could um, create around this? Because um, um, yeah, I, I, cause I'm not, I'm not absolutely positive that it is, is like you were saying, it's like, we have the money. So it's, like, it's not like we don't have the money. It's the way that we're using it and the way that we're thinking about um, what happens at these schools that, um, um, you know, like I, I go into classrooms sometimes and 
they've made black and white photocopies for the kids as opposed to giving them these really gorgeous books that they have access to. And for some reason, they decide that a printed off black and white, and I keep saying to them, don't children deserve color in their books? It's like, come on. I'm like, this is not an acceptable way of treating the children. So maybe it's the, it is some of that conversation that we have around like how we're using what we have and what, what those spaces could look like um, for kids. Yeah. So I, I did, I so appreciated your article. Oh my goodness. This was brilliantly done. Um, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, you've already answered my, like my last question, which was, yeah, a colleague of mine, we were talking about uh, science of reading, the reading wars, and he mentioned the these things go in cycles. Um, there's a thesis, and then there's an antithesis, and then there's synthesis, you know, and it goes back, you know, goes around and around. And um, do you see that? Do you see that? I guess the question we had was, are these hard conversations, these um, issues necessary to go through? in order to get to a better understanding of good reading instruction, like I don't enjoy arguing about the science of reading, but is it also kind of like the obstacle is the way kind of thinking too? My, my initial thought of that about that is it depends on who's having the conversation. Um, so I, I think about um, like the field of literacy research and uh, how, um, you know, this conversation sort of started in the 1960s. And in the field of literacy research, there has been a, a, a synthesis and, and has, and, and part of that synthesis is that yes, phonics is, is um, an effective uh, instructional tool, but it is not the entirety of, of a literacy curriculum. So within that field, I feel like there has been um, that thesis, antithesis and synthesis of the, this conversation. Um, I think within the public sphere, the motivations for it um, are different. Uh, I think it's less about um, it. There's a lot. It's very. It's complicated. There's a lot of money involved. There's a. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of things involved. But um, I don't think that that conversation, the sort of more public discourse on it, um, is coming to it necessarily um, earnestly um, and and willing to. Uh, engage with all of the research and evidence that we do have. So I think it it depends on who's having the conversation and for what purpose. And then and then the context, it sounds like too, yeah. if you're debating stuff on Twitter, it's gonna be a different conversation. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know what, you know, policymakers like things that um are very measurable and concrete and that I can legislate and and learning isn't really that clean um but gosh if it were that would be so much more convenient yeah, <laughs> really we're people and we're kind of messy <laughs> yeah I mean we can measure engagement you can measure you know those more messier kinds of things but yeah not in the way you can measure some of the things that seem to get more of the attention that's that's a great point You know, and one thing that worries me in this day and age, and and in my mind, it's more so than ever it's been in history, 
is the level of um, the level of mandating and mm-hmm. the the laws that are coming out from schools that are saying here are things that are not research based, like choice reading is not research based. You know, you, we just shake our heads and go, what? And so, you know, I think, too, it's really important for us to be very cognizant that teachers are in schools where these horrifying mandates are being put in place. And so at the same time that we're thinking about um, all of the important things, I mean, I love the uh, the discussion of let's envision what is possible. Uh, how do we, um, and I know that teachers do that every day, but how do we help teachers to understand how to maneuver uh, a school where there is a ball and chain attached to their, you know, their arms and legs and persona, so to speak? A lot of it comes to leadership and it's, it's the leadership in the schools. Um, Cause you, you can have that legislation piece, but it, it's interpreted, right? Yeah. So much by the school yeah. leadership. Um, so that 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 piece is so powerful and important. Mm-hmm. School leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Leah or, or Michiko, did you see when you were visiting these schools uh, during your dissertation, your studies, did you see a, a correlation with leadership and you mentioned affluence? Uh, did you see a, a leadership factor there with um, supporting teachers. I'll actually talk out of my teaching experience. So I taught um, third, fourth, and fifth in Texas. So they were all teaching grades, I mean, testing grades, excuse me. Um, and um, we had a remarkable principal uh, and she protected us from the district. Um, so when the district would say everybody, every elementary school in the, in the city has to do this professional development, she would appeal to them and say, hey, like, I would love to do this with professional development with my with my with my teachers instead, um, and so she absolutely and and this was a Title One school. Um, I think ninety seven percent of our kids were on free and reduced price lunch. More than half of our kids were were bi or multilingual. Um, this was a school that I think um, people would think of as uh, low performing. Um, and it wasn't, and it was a joyful place to work as a teacher. I felt like I had a lot of autonomy. I felt like I had a ton of administrative support. And because of that, we, our students performed very well on high stakes testing and, uh, enjoyed reading. <laughs> so I think that, uh, um, in my own experience, having, having, um, a supportive administrator willing to go to bat for us uh, made all the difference in the world. Well, that's great. I uh, it, we're we're running close to our time here together, and I want to be respectful of that. Is um, any kind of closing thoughts that you might have, Leah or Michiko? Um, if not, you can also share what you're reading right now. Um, as an option, but uh, yeah, just any closing um, thoughts as we close our time together. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about, and it was kind of, you know, part of the reason why we wanted to write specifically in in um, Phi Delta Cabin is a place that's accessible to um, to a lot of readers in a way that most academic journals aren't. Um, it's just, you know, I think that. Um, the state of the field is like a very 
difficult thing to know. You know, like it requires a lot of time devoted to reading um, to get a sense of what's going on in the field. What does the research say? What are like points of contention? Um, and I do feel like as people who have, you know, institutional access to all of these scholarly journals and, you know, that that time is part of our jobs is to be current, that that's an important thing that I want to do is try and translate that or make more accessible, um, you know, sort of the complexity or the synthesis that the field has arrived at um, in ways that I think are not always um, very easy to see if you can't, you know, get a access to a lot of scholarly journals or go to AERA or any of these other conferences. I, I would just add, add a couple of things. So first, I um, thank you for having us. I, I It's fun for Leah and me to talk about this. Um, this was an important piece for us. Um, but second, there's a, there is a piece that was just published in one of those journals that, of course, is behind a paywall that I would be happy to share with you um, about this that was written by David Ranking and just came out in January. Um, called Legislating Phonics, and he sort of goes, he and a couple of others sort of go through the, the um, history of this and, and um, challenge some of the arguments that uh, like phonics only people are making, which I thought was really helpful. Um, the second thing I thought about is a book called Rocking the Boat, um, How Tempered Radicals Affect Change. So when thinking about um, what teachers can do in their classrooms when, when we know that there are some institutional constraints um, and, and some other uh, challenges that they face, um, that, that's what comes to mind to me. So I'm, if I can share my screen for a quick second, I can just show you the cover. Yeah. And, and as a classroom teacher, this is sort of how I felt. I felt like uh, I was I was a tempered radical. I, I of course had to operate within the constraints of, of this the school and what I was expected to do. And I really worked to try to find those spaces um, where I could do something else. Um, so that that uh, I would just share. Oops. I wasn't fast oh, enough. Oh, sorry. All <laughs> <laughs> right. There you go. Oh, thank you. Let me do a quick Rocking screen. Rocking the boat, how tempered radicals affect change without making trouble. Okay. Ooh, I, oh, I love that title. Fun. Deborah Myerson. It really resonated for me as uh, some as a teacher, where where we do operate within the systems and how we might be able to make change from the inside without just burning it all to burn. <laughs> wow! And still be able to teach and lead and study and do research. Yeah. And uh -huh. this has been great. Uh, we really appreciate you all being here, and um, we look forward to reading more from you. So thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was really great to get to thank talk. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>